quick announcement before we get started. We'll be skipping a week in September to work on production. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Buck Starts Here. Today, I have the brilliant Charles Mander. Hello. Hello. Um, I would be the first person to uh, (laughs) argue against the brilliant, but hello. I'm a researcher uh, on the market research team at Credit Karma. Yeah. No, so so Charles is, it's very funny to me because Charles is like the, the humblest person I know and literally every single person I talk to about Charles is like, man, Charles is so smart. I wish I could be his friend. So I'm just gonna go ahead and pump him up because he deserves it. And today we're gonna talk a little bit about COVID-19 and personal finances uh, using Charles's very clever data analyst eye. But before we get started, I have to let you know that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be used as financial advice. Credit Karma receives compensation from third-party advertisers, but that doesn't affect our opinions on this show. Credit Karma's marketing partners do not review, approve, or endorse this content. It's our new and improved disclaimer. It's a lot shorter. Do you like it? Nice. Yeah. (laughs) I have to admit, I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and um, I don't think... Yeah, now that I think about it. And any of the ones that I normally listen to have a disclaimer, but um, I guess it's good to cover your bases. Um, so I think that the first place we should start with is unemployment, because I think that that is people's employment is what is going to govern a lot of their personal finances. And woo, buddy, it was unemployment, unemployment real bad during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of the major, like, touch point um that the pandemic had on people's lives when everything just kind of suddenly changed last um depending on where you were march or april just like humming along uh, as normal then all of a sudden everything shut down all at once um mm-hmm. just across society yeah it was definitely a bizarre time i have in front of me um a chart that probably many saw on the news, (laughs) I've heard it described as the scariest chart you'll ever see. Um, But it's basically the week by week initial unemployment claims coming from the Department of Labor. We had a peak in like 2008, 2009 during the Great Recession and took, you know, a number of years, very gradual, linear recovery, um, getting to a good place. And then in the (laughs) early part of 2020, it just spikes. To the scale on this, I um, can yeah just estimate many, many, many times the uh, peak of the Great Recession. So we were having like uh, at, at its highest, um, it just shot straight up from a pretty good recovery to six million in a single week. Yeah, I think there's this like really great New York Times front page where they have this exact graph and the unemployment line is just like right at the bottom and then the spike goes all the way up to the top so it's like you unfold the newspaper and there's just like this huge spike that goes across the entire i guess like up vertically the entire front page and that's insane and i mean we have seen some recovery but like we're basically just getting back to where we were during the great recession which was not good (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's the interesting part for me is um like we've for a while now, heard about pretty good recovery since the deepest part of the pandemic. 
Um, but looking at this chart in context, over a decade since the Great Recession, we have only until very recently, like I'm talking about a few weeks, been above the worst days of the Great Recession. So yeah, the Great Recession peaked around, looks like somewhere around 700,000 unemployment claims. And then we go from like a quarter million, so like good recovery uh, compared to Great Recession, to six million. <laughs> That's nuts. That's insane. And I remember graduating in 2011, which was a few years after the peak of the Great Recession, and like no one I knew had a job. No one I knew had a job. So I can't even imagine new college grads and like all those folks what they're doing right now. Yeah. I mean, I personally really lucked out. In early 2008, I actually quit my first career. Um, I was a QA engineer and I went back to grad school to pursue a PhD. Most of the people that I was working with were unemployed (laughs) as I was starting uh, grad school. So lucky for me. But yeah, really (laughs) tough time (laughs) in general. Yeah, 2008 was, was brutal. Also, my mom worked for Fannie Mae, so I spent a lot of time at the dinner table talking about mortgage backed securities oh, no. in those years. So I'm cool with 2008 being over, although I'm not cool with the unemployment right now. I think one of the interesting things, too, though, in the States is we've talked a lot about unemployment benefits and stimulus packages. And I feel like the idea of unemployment insurance right now is very top of mind because there's also a minimum wage debate. And people are saying like, oh, unemployment insurance is paying out too much. And that's why people don't want to go back to work, which I'm not going to touch with a 10 foot pole. But other people have been saying like, we haven't been doing enough to help people. Kind of what is your take? What is the data's take? What is Charles's take on the data's take of this? (laughs) Yeah, well, Gabby, you're probably not going to be surprised that my answer is going to be it's it's pretty complex. So um, (laughs) when you hear something simple, like people aren't going back to work because the unemployment benefits are too high. That's yeah, an oversimplification. Um, Just quantitatively, objectively, compared to other G20 nations have actually done. Wait, what's a G20 nation? Yes. So group of 20 of the highest GDP nations that make a lot of decisions in our system of, let's call it global capitalism. Um, (laughs) Okay. And um, yeah, I have a a chart here from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And adjusted by GDP, the United States is actually at the top of that chart for stimulus packages afforded to, well, yeah, people that are eligible for them. So yeah, like top three, United States, Singapore, Slovenia. One one kind of idiosyncrasy of the United States' response is that we had these, um, they were written into laws, these like CARES Act and their, their counterparts later in the pandemic. So it was like these waves of payments rather than kind of a rolling. Right, so instead of like a smoothly flowing stream, it was like, a dry bed and then you went over a waterfall of payments and then it returned to a dry, well, not a dry bed because there was still money coming in. But I feel like a lot of other nations, they kind of kept the amount that they were giving people very static over the course of the pandemic. And for us, it was just like kind of smooth, middle of the road, maybe a little bit lower, a lot lower than other people. And then we just like spiked and gave people a ton of money and then it's gone back down again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. So we, at the start of the pandemic, we were paying out like 60% on average of people's former salaries before they became unemployed due to the pandemic. Um, And then a stimulus payment came in and we were up to like 140%. So people objectively were being paid more than they would have been if they were employed. But that was a one-time thing. And then, you know, these funds ran out. People have bills that are 
coming to them on a continuous basis, whereas we're just like, here's this thing, and then live off that, and then right. here's this other thing, <laughs> live off that. <laughs> We've done um, that, what, like three three times now? Three times, yeah. So those are the stimulus payments, and then it's just kind of been a weird patchwork, uh, or weird, uh, complex patchwork <laughs> of state unemployment, federal unemployment, and then federal one-time stimulus payments that weren't actually one-time because we repeated them with subsequent bills. And it was, I guess, the overall amount of money that people who are eligible to receive it was pretty good. It was really stressful for consumers to kind of get them at irregular intervals, irregular amounts, whereas other countries kind of kept it steady. Just like 70 to 90 percent of um, formerly employed people's salaries just kind of on a regular basis rolling in perpetuity until things are in a better economic position. That feels like maybe a little bit more comfortable for people just to study knowing what you're going to get. And I think that that's part of the criticism and the problem with the stimulus payments in the United States is that you just never knew when you were going to get what. And then on top of that, something that you were mentioning to me earlier is that we approached stimulus in a very, you said patchwork kind of way, which which makes sense to me. So like for the for the national stimulus, people topped out at twelve hundred dollars. But in California, that's two weeks of rent. (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing. The income cutoffs or requirements and the the amount that people received it was all on just like this kind of flat national basis so it's just like yeah like if you got a $1200 check or myself i you know as a married person with no children it was first check was 2400 for the two of us that might pay for like several months of rent in one region whereas <laughs> here in the bay area you're lucky if it will pay for one month of rent yeah, so I lived in Nebraska for two years. I don't know if you knew that. I lived in Lincoln in the Granger building, which is in the Haymarket, which is like the cool, hip neighborhood, and uh, you can walk everywhere. And my rent was $300 a month. Wow. <laughs> I lived I, in a two-bedroom apartment. Can't imagine. So that would have been four months worth of rent for me. Like, that would have been incredible. And like, like you said, here didn't even cover a month. Yeah, yeah. So that's another. And, you know, this was, I think, part of it was just the fact that we needed to act quickly. We needed to help people out. There wasn't time to just design the systems that would make everything scaled to a region's cost of living and median income and all of that. And it was just like, nope, $1,200 to everyone as soon as we can get it. Which is, yeah, another issue with how it was rolled out. Like some people were waiting months. Some people had a direct deposit right away. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, this is something that got complicated with uh, taxes because it depended on whether or not you had filed taxes in the previous year. And you would still be eligible for the payment even if you hadn't filed taxes before, but you needed to then file taxes for that year. And like it's super complicated. And if you've never filed taxes before, like that can be a very scary experience and then on top of that like a lot of people don't realize that you don't necessarily need to pay to file your taxes if you make underneath a certain income limit so like it 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 could become like a very expensive very stressful thing and it's i could see that being very disheartening for whether or not you were able to actually access the the money yeah yeah so yeah the theme that 
seems to be emerging is just kind of this disjointed but overall effective ish yeah ish, um <laughs> well yeah the, the other caveat is um we're just right for up to now we've just been talking about people that have qual- both qualified for and applied for and been approved for financial relief in the form of unemployment or stimulus payments yeah because there are plenty of people out there who just never qualified or who applied and for whatever reason didn't get it like there's there's just like a lot of different circumstances out there yeah and those people are a lot harder to capture in the data in general yeah that is definitely true monumental difficulty getting the right people the right aid we did the best we could (laughs) it it did a lot of good um, but there was a lot of real genuine financial pain over this last 15 16 months and as it stands now you know, as people have received these payments, some were in a position to save, some or all of them. Some spent them right away uh, because they needed to. They had bills. Um, looking at, there's a TransUnion financial hardship report. Some of the top bills early on in the pandemic that people were falling behind on were kind of the things you would expect. Credit card bills, um, utilities, car payments, and housing, whether that be rent or mortgage. In a survey fielded in mid-April of 2020, respondents reported being an average of $1,048 was their budget shortfall. And two out of three replied that they were concerned about their ability to pay their current bills and loans. It was somewhat higher at 72% for those families, households with uh, children living at home. So yeah, lots of economic financial anxiety and pain. Cut to now, people have been managing as best they can. As of June 28th, this is from the National Equity Atlas, the estimate is that 5.7 million households in the United States are behind on rent, and the average that they're behind on rent is $3,400. Now in California, the estimate is around 750,000 households with an average of 4,700 behind in rent. Jeez Louise. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I, we, we've also done some studies at Credit Karma, just like general gen, gen pop, as we call them, general population studies of the American public. And one of the things that we asked people was, how are you planning on using your stimulus check? And f- every time that we asked that question, most people said that they were planning to use it to pay bills. Like they were, they were, most people were using it to pay for necessities like utilities or mortgage or whatever. And then a lot of the people who said that they weren't using it for that said they were using it, they were just gonna save it just in case because they were worried about when the next, next stimulus t- payment would come, if a next stimulus payment would come. But I know in California that we, I think, maybe Newsom signed something. Yeah, this was a couple weeks ago. Newsom is our governor, by yes, the way. Yes, Gavin Newsom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I yeah, it was mid to late June. Yeah, Gavin Newsom um, signed a bill allocating $5.2 billion in rent relief for any Californians making less than 80% of the median income um, where they live. And this is full rent forgiveness. So that's this is huge news. This is a huge help to these people, these 758,000 households with $4,700 in back rent. Yeah, for sure. And this is something that hopefully we'll see more of in my opinion which is like a more localized solution for people right pegging it to 80 percent of the median income of an area as opposed to just saying okay here's 1200 doesn't matter where you live <laughs> yeah yeah it's much more personal more i guess to use the language that we use in our business more targeted <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh, this is a fancy way of saying more efficient <laughs> yeah yeah 
hopefully, hopefully this will help a lot of people. Um, I think we spent a lot of time talking kind of about how unemployment and how people were falling behind, but like there, there have been plenty of surveys that have also looked at like how people feel about their finances, which unsurprisingly is, is not great. People don't feel super good about them, but some people actually weirdly are better off than they were before the pandemic. Um, yeah. So, um, or at least they feel that they're better off. <laughs> yes. Um, it's very important. Yeah. This is sort of sentiment data. So these are, um, some people think of surveys as being quantitative. Others consider them to be qualitative. I like to think of it as quantifying qualitative data. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're t- collecting qualitative data at scale in a way that you can do quantitative analyses on them. So yeah, like six months, half a year into the pandemic, we asked people how their financial situation has changed as a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a fairly wide distribution. Right in the middle, 37% said that their financial situation has not changed. And for the people that for whom it had changed, um, there was a somewhat greater bulk of the balance in people saying that their situation was worse. So 36% saying that their financial situation is worse than a bit or substantially, and um, 26% saying that it's improved a little bit or substantially. So people have had financially much varied experience of this pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And I think that what you were talking about earlier, actually, I think is very important because I think a lot of the times when people look at data, especially in the news, they don't realize that there there are many ways that people sometimes look at data and decide, well, maybe not decide, but end up misinterpreting it. And so understanding the difference between asking someone like, how do you feel about your situation? And then like having some sort of quantitative look like seeing like how much is in their checking account and how far behind are they on bills which are like more hard numbers that you can decide on your own those are those are two very different things so i think it's just really important when you're looking at all this data to like really read closely into the language because it can it can be asking very different things right right so i yeah kind of see methodologies on a continuum um (laughs) like um yeah so on one end of the continuum is you sit down with a single person and have an interview with them just a conversation and find out every aspect of what things are like for them on the other end of the spectrum you survey ten thousand people um, take some measurement and you calculate an average and that average represents everybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah, there's the there's all kinds of clever analytical techniques that you can do in the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to slice data in the most relevant ways. It's kind of like being a detective. Um, you basically find the ways to represent the data that most directly answer the question, but also most comprehensively. Yeah, um, for sure. I think there's. I think I really like talking to you because I feel like you really appreciate like that there is an art to data. Um, and that like you can end up unintentionally manipulating the data just even on how you ask the question. Yes, um, absolutely. And so um, you are a detective, like trying to figure out what it actually means. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. The There are oftentimes points of context that innocuously can mi- misrepresent the data. Other times can actually lead you to the opposite conclusion that... Um, <laughs> you would otherwise have arrived at if you didn't have some important piece of context. I think basically what I'm saying is that if you're listening to this and you're like, I wonder if I should take that statistics class, the answer is yes. Take this as a sign. (laughs) Oh, and yes. So um, I did 
um, spend five years in grad school, and um, one of the classes that I TA'd was research methodologies, of which statistics is a large part of. And um, further to Gabby's point, just because you either have historically not been very good at math or have not enjoyed it very much, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will not be good at statistics or enjoy it very much. Yeah, um, no, that's so true. I, when I was in fourth grade, a teacher told me that I was bad at math and I really took that to heart, um, which is very unfortunate because it turns out I'm actually, I would say extremely average at math. Like if you give me a problem, I will figure out the right answer. It might just take me a little bit of time because I use, I use all the steps. My best friend is an engineer and she looks at the same problem and she's like, oh, well you can take these three shortcuts and here's the answer. And I was like, I always got so mad because I was like, well, I got the same answer, but it was just 10 minutes later. <laughs> um, but anyway, my point is that I, it turns out I really like math. I find it very soothing. There's typically only one right answer. Statistics is not like that. If you like, if you like literature, then history and stuff, maybe you like statistics a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, statistics, it's applied math. Um, yeah. It's, it's always uh, for a purpose relevant to something mm -hmm. that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. so, it always tells yeah. the story. In some way, tell the story, answers the question. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, we rapidly wandered off the path, which I can always do when I'm talking about statistics. Uh, what do we want to talk about next? Let's talk a little bit about um, what do you want to talk about next? Um, well, uh, in my notes here, I have um, this phrase in one of my notes K shaped recovery. Oh, a K-shaped recovery. Um, what is that? that? So basically, it is the economy improving and financial situations improving for some people and not for other people. For those other people, it's actually getting worse. So that's why it's a K, because one little arm of the K goes up and one arm goes down. Yeah, and you'll see this in a lot of different measures. The one specifically that I have here, um, it's one of our softer measures. It's a measure of financial optimism. We ask people whether or not they expect to be in a better financial situation in a year's time. And um, we saw this just plummet last March, April, May, across all demographics. And has it's slowly recovered since then, but amongst certain segments of the population. So people who are more educated, who had higher incomes going into the pandemic. Which tend to be correlated as well. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is not that surprising. The, I'm just describing people for whom our economy and our society affords more opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, so it just kind of makes sense that through this um, kind of traumatic shock that we've all gone through, that there are some people that are set up better for success, better for recovery coming out of it. So that's basic description of the K-shaped recovery that we've been seeing. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it also speaks to the oversimplification when you, if you hear some financial um, reporting, head. yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking about the like economy us. recovering, that's an oversimplification <laughs> of things. No one measure I feel is adequate. Um, you talk about stock being a hot market. Um, yeah, that's true. I think a lot, yeah, that, that, that's true and very important for some people. For many, many others, that's like... Yeah, if you, if you don't have any money to invest, it doesn't matter how great the stock market is exactly. because you're worried about eating that day. I think that the other thing to think about too, there's a lot of research that's been done on how poverty can negatively affect people's mental health, um, 
and even like physical health outcomes. And there's, there's just, it can be a whole spiral. So this is something that doesn't, I feel like sometimes people hear like, yeah, K-shaped recovery, like, yeah, I'm doing fine. So like, whatever. But the thing is we live in a society not to get my like lecturer's hat on, but we live in a society. So like those other people doing poorly affects everyone. Yes, that is true. (laughs) I mean, we do live in a society. Um, We're all, whether you view it from the lens of shared economy in which we're all Right. Engaged in economic, our own individual economic activity. The simple truth is, yeah, like you, if people are um, sick or stay or, or can't work because of the possibility of another wave of infection, the economy can't recover. Um, yeah. So mental health and physical health, very closely related. Economic health and uh, mental slash physical health also related. <laughs> Yeah. So basically what I'm saying is a uh, rising tide lifts all ships. No man is an island. Uh, am I missing any, you know, like vague metaphors? <laughs> um, I think of any off the top of my head. But all right. Yeah, great. No, yeah, <laughs> I think I covered it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for joining me today, Charles. I really, really appreciate it. Is there anything that you wish that you could have said that you didn't get to say? We we kind of like uh, see the news about reopenings, um, and it's just like we can all go back to normal. <laughs> and um, a lot of us have. I mean, I've recently been, um, you know, dining indoors. Uh, I'm fully I mean, vaccinated. We're um, sitting in the same room without yes. masks on inside recording this. <laughs> yeah. So um, as we were starting, the I did have a moment where I was, yeah, just the the kind of um gestalt was uh, <laughs> dawning on me we're uh sitting down to record this podcast the topic is um the pandemic the you know uh, shutting down of society as we're like meeting in this brand new office building uh our company's lease started in during the pandemic um so it hasn't been fully utilized ever uh today's a friday before a long weekend and there are maybe 20 people in this building. Yeah. It's funny. There's 20 people in this building and yet here we are in the smallest room together. Yeah. And talking about the pandemic. (laughs) Talking about the pandemic. It's definitely, it's definitely kind of a surreal experience and it's weird to be, I feel like sometimes like I definitely fall into that trap where I'm like, oh yeah, it's over. Everything's fine. But like we are recording this on July 2nd. We don't actually know if it's over. Yeah, I mean... We don't know what's going to happen. I guess, yeah, what I was trying to say is, like, we haven't really addressed kind of, like, the elephant in the room, which is just, like, we have all been directly exposed to this massive disruption in how we live our lives, how we earn our livings, like, kind of just being a person in this society that, you know, we're part of. And, you know, fingers crossed, vaccinations are doing well enough that we can reopen and reopen safely and be confident in going back to our old lives. Can we (laughs) just do it that easily? Like, we've spent over a year just completely living our lives in a completely different way. (laughs) Yeah. And even 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 if it were, quote unquote, that easy, like we just reopen and everything goes back to quote unquote normal. There's a whole swath, yeah, definitely swath, not swath, (laughs) whole swath of society that suffered incredibly 
potential just i'm just going to talk about in economic terms suffered incredible economic loss during the pandemic and like even for them to get back to where they were before that's going to take a long time yeah i mean yeah we started off um i don't our listeners can't see but that that uh you can find it on department of labor unemployment claims um it took years and years and years for the great recessions um the, the recovery um so yeah we're, it, it recovery is ahead of us um, yeah it, it's i i would say it's not it, there's there's ripples that go out from this that extend probably decades um yeah. and, well and yeah and to your point of things going back to normal it, it will go back to a normal um but yeah things will be different and you know it's not necessarily good or bad things they're just gonna be just, different yeah have to adjust yeah and yeah i think there will be some good things that come out of it i think you know hygiene will be better (laughs) or at least people will think more about it um yeah i mean our economy is um the the way we do business um the way that companies and brands and individuals all interact has forever been changed and um you know we will produce opportunities um that never existed before um yep and then other opportunities that used to exist no longer exist yeah that's just the way it goes yeah we don't know we don't know um charles thank you so much for joining me i really really appreciate it i think you're wonderful i really appreciate it um as a big podcast fan i listen to a lot of podcasts i was really excited to be on here and i am glad for the opportunity to speak with you and talk about this really interesting at least in my world the research world (laughs) over the last year has you know in a selfish perspective has given me so much to do (laughs) um but um yeah it's been great yeah well you are welcome back absolutely anytime and listeners i have nothing more to say to you except for another disclaimer this is what you get in exchange for a shorter disclaimer up front. You get a second disclaimer at the end, which is the views expressed here are those of Credit Karma's editorial team or their guests. That's you, Charles. They do not represent the views of Credit Karma since the opinions and information on our show don't consider your personal situation. Always do your own research before making financial decisions. The information on the show is accurate to the best of our knowledge when it's recorded. That's it, y'all. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>